Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Stinger, welcome back to 10th Century. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. So we, we, we did the uh, Syria conversation last time around, and um, it'd be interesting this time around maybe to talk about how you got into the Air Force. You're a, a front seat or a Strike Eagle pilot right now, um, but you started off in the back seat. Um, so can you tell us about your journey into the Air Force and, and how it is that you went, uh, first of all, to, to NAV or, or WIZA? Sure. Um, we'll start out a uh, long time ago. Um, joined Civil Air Patrol, actually, when I was really young, like 15 or 16, and um, got a little scholarship into a um, this thing called a National Flight Academy, and uh, sent you out to Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and soloed a, uh, a 172 uh, there, and um, that's pretty much it. Uh, didn't fly really much past that point, uh, did the whole normal high school thing, and then um, started the... Uh, the whole college deal. Um, so ended up, uh, having to go to a, uh, community college, uh, to get my degree and it ended up being a four year degree throughout that time. I uh, worked about three or four jobs, uh, in between, you know, minimum wage jobs and like prep cook and all that sort of jazz and still wanted to fly. Uh, just didn't really have the money for it. So, uh, volunteered as much as I could at the airport to try to, uh, make friends and, I wash airplanes and meet people and stuff and still uh, make some money uh, if I could. So I started washing airplanes at the airport and uh, helped a friend um, that I knew who was a mechanic there, uh, start turning wrenches in the hangar. And uh, he graciously allowed me to um, uh, get some hours with his flight school when they had the chance. Um, so did that and it ended up getting my private when I was about uh, 23 or 24 and, um, uh, ended up working towards a commercial, uh, and multi and all that sort of stuff. And that worked out uh, pretty well, but it was all from, you know, washing airplanes and doing odd jobs at the airport and stuff like that. So, uh, and then working a couple of different jobs, uh, throughout the summertime and whatnot. So, uh, did that and met a incredible group of people uh, at the airport that had some old uh, warbirds and you know they asked me if i wanted to fly with them i said sure and got uh, checked out and some of that stuff started going to static displays at um air shows with a uh, an old chinese uh, cj6 trainer um which was a lot of fun to fly and then uh, i started working for a group of guys uh down in the uh, caribbean South America area, uh, and, uh, delivering airplanes down there, 
um, that they would uh, uh, pick out and buy and kind of brokered some deals with uh, with buying some airplanes in the U.S. And it introduced me to a lot of different types and stuff and ended up getting a, uh, a multi-C and a, a single-C uh, commercial as long as a, and as well as a um, uh, L39 type rating and some other stuff. Um, uh, that was all just happenstance. That worked out pretty good from meeting people and um, all that sort of jazz. So, uh, started taking um, airplanes to uh, uh, air shows, and simultaneously, uh, I worked for a, a skydiving company, making almost no money. Uh, I moved to a, uh, <laughs> I moved to this little trailer park in New York, uh, and was making like ten dollars a day or something flying uh, skydivers just to build up time um, to try to be appealing to somebody somewhere. Uh, did that for a while. Um, still did uh, static displays at air shows. Uh, ran to a really awesome dude named um, Jared Isaacman, uh, and he asked me if I want to come um, uh, eventually work with them and do some stuff that he was doing with a uh, with a jet team, and that worked out really well. Um, so got involved in some cooler airplanes, met a lot of uh, more interesting people, and uh, it just so happened that. The group of guys that I started working with were a lot of retired fighter pilots, really awesome, incredible guys. And that's kind of what I wanted to do before I got too old. So I threw down for a bunch of different um, opportunities, whether it was Navy, Air Force, or Guard, etc. Long story short, um, got turned down by quite a few and then picked up uh, eventually by uh, the Air Force active duty. And they offered me a, a Wizzo slot, which wasn't my number one choice. Um, but it was going to be cool. And I was coming up against the age bracket so that, um, I probably wasn't going to be able to get an age waiver to get in. So I took the Wizzo slot and said, it'd be awesome to go, uh, serve and get some great experiences and then, uh, go fly the F-15, which would be what I wanted to do and get into fighters and all that stuff. Um, so did that, uh, went to OTS and then, uh, went to, uh, uh, CISO training in Pensacola and the F-15B course um, in North Carolina, and then went to uh, went to England for my first assignment, um, and then kept every year. I would um, every year when I was eligible, I'd start applying and for pilot training, and I got rejected a few times, uh, a few years, and then finally, um, my last year of applying, I got picked up, and then went to uh, uh, Shepherd uh, to end up to uh, Euro NATO Joint Jet Pilot Training. Uh, for pilot training and then dropped uh, F-15s or F-15Es and then uh, went back to the community uh, that way. So that's pretty much the whole story summed up in a not so short tale. So, Did, did you, when you were growing up then, obviously, if, so if you were scrimping and saving and you had put yourself through commercial license to the point where you were a commercial pilot um, as a result of, of, it sounds like sort of blood, sweat and tears, uh, and not coming from a position of, of wealth or having somebody else pay for it for you. Um, sounds like you you were passionate about aviation and you must have been for your whole life. But but did it take meeting that group of fighter pilots to get you to the point where you wanted to be a fighter pilot? Did the L-39 check out? Um, did that s- sort of turn you on to the idea of, of that being a career field? I think so. Um, the L-39 check out, uh, came to me through some pretty cool circumstances. And I would say most of the opportunities, uh, I got, uh, were just a matter of like luck timing and a lot of like good 
bullshitting over beers. Uh, uh, and then one thing leads to another and you just try to make things happen. And, um, as well, as far as going back and flying fighters, uh, no. So when I was growing up, um, I had read almost every fighter pilot's autobiography from and biography from World War II. Um, you know, I was reading Thunderbolt by Robert, uh, S Johnson, you know, I had read, uh, Bob Hoover's story and, you know, uh, Bud Anderson and all these guys. And, and they were pretty, uh, I thought they were pretty cool. And, um, so as I was going to this community college, I really, uh, I didn't think that I had the pedigree to be able to get into, um, the air force or Navy, uh, with a pilot slot. Um, so I figured I'll have to keep working at it and trying to increase the credentials as I can. And one of these ways to do it was try to get through a commercial uh, rating, at least, you know, with a bunch of hours. And and I really enjoyed flying and, and I really enjoyed flying uh, different types of airplanes and kind of shooting from the hip and doing some other stuff. And we got into um, some aerobatics and I briefly dabbled with trying to get into um, uh, aerobatic competitions with a pits uh, that, I uh, had an opportunity to fly, you know, a handful of times and, and it, it, and I really enjoyed it. Um, but the cool thing about the aviation circle was that, uh, you can find another group of people with uh, a passion for aviation and get plugged in with them. And they share that, you know, your enthusiasm for aviation and they'll try to help you out. And that's kind of just the way the aviation family sort of is. Um, you know, if you spend time, you know, washing airplanes and turning wrenches at the airport, you're pretty much bound to, uh, have somebody who's going to let you, you know, fly their airplane or fly with them, or it's just, it's all about sharing this aviation experience. So I really enjoyed that. And I, the other thing was that I didn't want to, um, for me personally, I didn't want to, uh, go through life while I had the chance to, uh, be a fighter pilot and not take it or not fight for it, uh, as, as much as I could. Um, so I said, you know what, if, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to have to, you know, claw my way, uh, to making this happen, which is exactly what it ended up being. <laughs> and it was actually a lot more work than I thought it was going to be. Uh, but it's just as rewarding. So, so I'm pretty, pretty thankful I did that. The, uh, the L39 type just kind of confirmed what I had already thought about stuff and, and man, I, I loved it and I love formation flying and loved everything. You know, it's probably not as good as some people are at it, but I, I loved it, you know, all the same. So is there, um, when you're making that decision then to, to join the Air Force as a, an ABRA or, or a weapon systems officer, uh, and you've got all this flight time or experience behind you, maybe not massively experienced, but you put yourself through all these ratings and you're used to being the person driving the bus. Um, is there a part of you that you really have to manage or a part of your psyche that you have to manage when you're sitting in the back seat, which says, don't be distracted by the thought of getting to the front, you know, do your job well? um, in this role, um, and, and don't spend time thinking, well, I wish I was strapping into the front seat, not the back seat. Yeah, I think there's a, definitely a, there's definitely a piece of that. Uh, one of the most profound areas I think where that manifests itself is during BFM or, you know, dog fighting or whatever. Um, because I mean, you have a role definitely in the back seat. Um, but BFM is a, you know, pretty front seat intensive, uh, mission set. And it's so much fun. And so every time we would go out and do that, yeah, it was always, you know, daydreaming about being in the front seat and, you know, what I would do differently or, you know, or that I could be better at it, you know, 
and, and that sort of natural competition that you'd get yourself into um, overall. Uh, I'll caveat that and say, um, I when I first went in, I, I really didn't appreciate um, what Wizzos uh, did in the backseat of the Strike Eagle. And I don't think a lot of single pilot uh, jets really understand um, the complexity and the immersion into tactics that Wizzos get to do. Uh, when you're flying in the front seat, you have a lot of things that you have to concentrate on. Obviously, flying and and you know not hitting the ground or anything attached to the ground, uh, where you're going to put your jet, you know, from a geometry perspective and and just general safety stuff and systems and everything like that. Uh, usually, when you're in the back seat, I mean, you can really dive into tactics uh, and you can really dive into what all is happening in the air and what's happening on the ground and then how to meld those things together with the weapons that you have and then the other formation members that you have. So I really found some sort of satisfaction in that of getting as tactical as possible uh, with being a Wizzo and really uh, learning from, you know, the patches in our squadron and, and other guys that had a lot of experience uh, being able to just make stuff happen and nobody's really good at it when they start. Um, there's some fast burners for sure, but, but nobody's super good at it. And it takes, it takes experience and it takes a lot of critical thinking and then it takes, you know, real world, usually real world combat experience. And that, that all kind of melts together to try to create this like good, uh, tactician sense. Uh, and I really enjoyed that. Uh, I thought it was really challenging, loved it. So that kind of kept the, um, I guess kept everything intact as far as just, you know, being a hundred percent towards being a pilot in the front, uh, overall. So did it feel, it's, it's, if it's not a strange question, but did it feel like a bit of a risk because I suppose that the reason I say it's a bit of a strange question is because principally people are motivated to join the military to serve their country. Um, mm-hmm. and I wonder you know, how much of that is, is sort of, yes, that's true, but really I'm joining because I want to fight fighters. Um, you know, was there, was there a component, um, to that that was therefore risky for you? Did you, did you have a game plan for if, when you had your final opportunity to apply for UPT, if that had not gone through, would you have served a shorter term in the Air Force? I think potentially, I mean, just being 100% realistic, I think that's, uh, definitely, definitely a potential. There's some cool opportunities in the Air Force that, um, if you're, I wouldn't say ambitious enough, but I would say passionate enough, uh, you can get yourself into some great opportunities, whether you're a Wizzo or whether you're a pilot, uh, that can be just as personally fulfilling or personally satisfying, I guess, uh, as it would, you know, much, uh, anything else. And what I really didn't want to do, uh, was look back on life and uh, not having not have served or, or, or you know, done my part or played a you know a role in something uh, when I had the opportunity to you know um, so it, that was kind of the ultimate uh, goal there um, as far as like flying fighters now personally I couldn't imagine not flying fighters uh, you know. I mean, it would be great. Don't get me wrong. I think there's a lot of great airframes out there and a lot of really cool flying. Uh, I know AFSOC or the Special Operations Command does like great flying to austere places, you know, and they get to, they, they have a lot of fun in what they do. Um, but I couldn't imagine just not flying fighters. So that was kind of the, the goal. And um, so I, yeah, I would say probably like, you know, 
90% of it was service uh, driven and probably 10% of it was uh, fighter driven uh, sp- specific to, you know, flying fighters. But the, the fighter thing was a, was definitely a, a constant, I would say the, the whole entire way for sure. Um, I, I don't know. It's uh, hard to explain, but I guess most fighter pilots would identify themselves <laughs> with, uh, with all the guys that they've read in the past and kind of naturally drawn to that, um, that genre of fighting. If you come up with that term, I guess, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm curious. It's, it's a bit of a sort of diversion from the stuff we normally talk about on this channel because we're really talking about mostly talking about aeroplanes and and sort of you know how to fly them and stuff. But I, I suppose ego is something that you know most people have to some degree or another, and, and fighter pilots probably have to a greater degree than a lesser degree. And you know, some people see their identity in what they do for a living, and you know, saying to somebody, "I'm a fighter pilot," is different to saying somebody i'm you know i'm a a navigator or a weapon systems officer it's interesting because there's uh so my year group um that you know all the guys that i went to officer training with we had a lot of people that got picked up for uh ciso slot so a nav slot um essentially um and they didn't know whether they're going to be a c-130 nav or an f-15 you know wizzo or whatever um and they came from you know, commercial pilot backgrounds. Uh, as a matter of fact, our patch uh, in our squadron, who's a Wizzo, was a uh, regional airline pilot for quite a few years before he went to the Air Force. Um, so there's, and he's not the only one. There's a, a bunch of different guys who were, uh, who had a well-developed uh, civilian flying lives prior to being a Wizzo. Um, so for me, uh, it's, it was just kind of a personal goal to always get there. And I guess if you identified as a uh, pilot uh, early enough, you know, you just always wanted to make it happen and and try your best uh, to be able to get there. And I was fortunate enough to be able to make that happen. Um, And I really do think that I was fortunate uh, because there's so many things that are out of your hands when it comes to making that uh, transition happen. Depends on the needs of the air force and depends on how many pilots they need that year. And it, it's a lot of it. You can work your ass off and not get, um, you know, not get to what you want. So, but you got to try, right? So, uh, that, that's what we kind of did. And, and from an, from an ego perspective, I mean, I yeah, obviously have a little bit different perspective because, uh, of, of being a whistle, but I think from an ego perspective, there is a, uh, there's a, huge fulfillment that comes from being a Wizzo that is hard to explain. And, uh, it's more in the tactical realm of being able to make stuff happen at the tactical level, um, which, which I think is really, really cool. And a lot of guys, like I said before, who are, uh, you know, single seat fighter guys and that, that's all they've ever wanted. And that's all they've ever achieved. Uh, usually don't quite understand that. Um, but, um, yeah, I, for the strike yield community itself, I feel like we have a little bit more of a transparency or a little bit more of equality when it comes to the, um, uh, Wizzo pilot relationship and, and being able to make stuff happen. So uh, a, a lot of Wizzos are, are really content with what they're doing and how they're contributing to the mission, uh, which is very, very profound. Um, when I fly casts or close air support as a pilot now, uh, it is way boring 
like super boring. <laughs> um, when, you know, flying cast as a, uh, a Wizzo is just incredible. Like you're, you know, you're calling all the shots, you, you know, what's going on and you're just making stuff happen. And, you know, it's great. And you have a really good relationship with the ground guys and you just, um, you're, you're really making stuff happen. Now, when I fly BFM as a pilot, I feel a lot better, obviously. <laughs> so there's a, there's that trade off, but, uh, but I, I wouldn't, I, I think a lot of Wizzos are, are pretty happy with w- where they're at. It, it's more of a silent professional deal because you can go to a red flag or you can go to other multi MDS exercise. And some of the Wizzos get shit on from time to time for being Wizzos. And, you know, they're, they're, they're always, you know, talked down to from some single pot, you know, single seat fighters and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, uh, but, but a lot of those guys just don't, quite understand so they kind of brush it off as you know whatever do, do you think um that the so the f-15ex the, the eagle 2 i think the air forces are very unimaginatively named it uh it's coming <laughs> soon or i think yeah. the first two the first two have been delivered to the air force already and um they're going to go to guard units i know you're not a sea model guy but they're going to go to guard units um eagle like our eagle eagle units the two seaters the, the ex um, and you've said a couple of times that um, in, in many instances, those single seat guys just don't really understand the the value of the or, or what the the wizard can bring to the fight. Uh, is there a um, sort of a, an obvious way of of sort of sharing that benefit? I mean, would you expect, for example, um, you know, so, or, or would there be any benefit to some C model guys coming in and flying, you know, with E model squadrons and, and spending time with wizards? Um, how do you think that um, you can change? Because presumably the Air Force needs to. But how do you think you can change the perception of the weapon systems officer in and amongst those uh, single seat units? Um, that's a super uh, good question, and a uh, if I'll follow it with kind of a complicated answer, if, if that's all right. Um, but so the. So there's good sides uh, being a single seat uh, fighter or single seat, uh, a new single seat fighter. And there's good sides to having a Wizzo and uh, all the things that a Wizzo could do. Uh, there's bad things as well. So I'll start with kind of the bad uh, from the Wizzo perspective, and then we'll talk about how to meld in the single seat guys. So one of the bad things about our community specifically is that um, the Wizzo does a lot of stuff in the back that could otherwise be done with some sort of automation. Uh, and we could harness technology in new kinds of ways to do Wizzo things. Um, some of the Wizzo population think that, that they don't really think it's a threat to their job or, you know, at, I'm not going to say that, but um, to their skill set rather. Uh, and then we don't have a lot of Wizzos that imagine a, um, how they could do bet, how they could do more in their skill set uh, by leveraging additional technology and a lot of other stuff. I'm a firm believer that the Strikeal community, and not just the Strikeal jet, but the Strikeal community, being a pilot and Wizzo combination, I think can do amazing stuff. And I think if we started to really push technology to its limits um, from what a backseater can do as far as controlling a lot of events that are happening in a, a mission and doing a lot of other things, I think we could, we could handle a lot of problem sets that nobody ever imagined. Um, 
So instead, the Strikeo community is guilty of uh, kind of staying in the past, uh, as it were, and what I would call reenacting the Gulf War every day, almost. And so you have Wizzos who are doing things that could otherwise be done you know, with some sort of automation or new technology or whatever it is. And we're not really evolving fast because those missions are getting done by Wizzo. If you look at the development from the F4 to the F15A, uh, a lot of things that the Wizzo was doing in the F4 turned into automated processes in the F15A, specifically the radar and some other sensors and et cetera, right? So there was less of a need for a Wizzo and there was a little bit more of a technology fill in there. If we, uh, so, so that's, that's good because that's a natural evolution of process and stuff. Um, for the uh, F-15 community, the single-seat community, I think that they're limited uh, by having a uh, single person in the jet about what they can do. Uh, it may be cool and it may, you may be the only guy who runs the show and that may be a great like you know, ego thing or whatever, which is cool. And you may be the final arbiter of what happens in your jet, which is great. Uh, but as far as from a mission set perspective... If you have another person there that's solely concentrated on a lot of emerging technology uh, and a lot of emerging capabilities, you can grow that airframe a lot faster. So if you take uh, the normal um, single seat guys and then hopefully we could use some wizards that are a little bit more forward thinking or... Uh, like I said, harness some emerging technology, et cetera. I, I think we could start, we could get everybody to start to see the benefits of that. Uh, overall, I'm not a huge fan of the EX. I don't like it uh, personally, which is probably not the right thing to say career wise, you know, for myself, but I give you the God's honest opinion. Um, you know, I don't really like Boeing uh, at all. Um, and it, it, there's numerous reasons why I would say that, but um the EX is, in my opinion, not a good deal uh, for the Air Force. Um, and uh, so I, I can't imagine it being that great of an aircraft uh, going into the future. I don't think it's very forward thinking. I don't think it's what we need to spend money on. Uh, <laughs> again, those are 100% my, you know, my own views, my own personal opinions, not the DOD, all that caveat. Um, but... If we really wanted to move forward with uh, capabilities, technology, et cetera, I think that the, the two-person concept um, is a natural iterative process for that. Uh, we just have to push it a little bit more. It was a super convoluted answer to your question, and I'm not even sure I actually answered your question. But, uh, but those are some random, random scattered thoughts for you. It, it did. It did. And my, and my questions are always convoluted and verbose. I could probably answer yeah, okay. much, much fewer words. So, so yeah. thank you for, for that. Um, so, so we're taking a different direction than in, in this conversation, um, by talking about EX and, and future capabilities and, and what the Air Force might, might do better or, or could do better. Um, originally we were going to go down and talk about your experience going to the front seat, but let's stay with, if it's okay with just, just for the moment and. Sure. Your, your vision for what's required. Um, there are things like the Loyal Wingman program, um, which by the sounds of it, you definitely need somebody in the backseat to run or it's optimal to have somebody in the backseat running that if you're going to have a bunch of drones. Um, then AI obviously is important, but it has its limitations. You know, There are some things you definitely want a man in the loop or a woman in the loop uh, to make decisions on. Um, so, so that 
seems to suit a two-person crew uh, concept quite well. What would what would you spend your money on then if you were, you know, if it's not the F fifteen EX? Um, what would be a better deal? Where would uh, the money be better spent? What would it look like? So if I was king for a day and I could control the PPBE process and everything, and it was all just my own vision, um, what I would do is I would start aircraft competitions that were based over like a 10-year span at the most for a 10-year contract buy. Uh, and I would have I would reload the defense industrial complex with specifically in the aviation sector with at least 10 primes uh, that were capable of producing aircraft. And then I would have them each compete with each other. And then we would start to evolve as a um, military aviation society. Uh, If you look at it right now, there's just a ton of consolidation. So there's three majors right in uh, aerospace as far as the U.S. is concerned. We have Boeing, Lockheed, and Northrop. um, And all those are consolidations of consolidations of consolidations. So spanning aircraft contracts over like 50, 50 years um, kills internal competition. Bottom line, right? If you make a, uh, if you say, hey, we're going to buy a fighter and we're going to buy it over 40 or 50 years, uh, nobody in any other company that doesn't win that bid wants to stick around to try to make fighters, right? Um, and then you're stuck, you're held hostage by the companies that you have. So when they don't iterate, fast enough or good enough, i.e. Boeing, uh, then you won't have this uh, iteration that happens uh, in a uh, combat sense or a combat capability sense, which is exactly where we're at right now. Um, so we have to change that dramatically. Um, if you, and, and you know, I like to say this, is that we look back on the first flight of the Eagle, right, in uh, 1972. So F-15A comes online in 1972. We're looking at buying the EX, a very, very marginally improved version of the same fighter. As a matter of fact, in most cases, it has the same subsystems that the original Eagles had. And and, and it's crazy because some of these uh, subsystems are problems in and of itself with uh, from a sustainability point. But they're using the same subsystems. Um, and the motor, so the 120i motor that was originally you know, drafted for this, and granted, there's an engine competition going on right now, but... It's designed in the late 80s. You know, come on. Like, we're talking 30 years ago, this engine technology, and you're throwing, <laughs> what, what, you know, are you kidding? So, uh, so anyway, so let's just say it's 49 years ago from the first flight of the original Eagle, right? Now uh, the A model. Now we go back in time uh, to, you know, 1918, 1919, or whatever. Fabric wing biplanes. Now you go 49 years into the future, and you have the Mach 3 SR-71, right? Uh, so you have this like huge, you know, spiral in technology, um, that's caused by, uh, uh, competition, but externally, which happened to be war. Uh, and then you have uh, competition, which is internally. So at the height of this huge production of, you know, just going from Mach one to Mach two to Mach three, uh, we had like something like 19 primes, uh, that were all trying to get, you know, claw their way to a piece of the defense budget, right? Um, and then you go on into the 60s and 70s, et cetera, um, and you look at, like, Lockheed. And Lockheed, to my knowledge, wasn't even making fighters when they came up with the idea for the F-117, you know, when they started saying, hey, stealth can be a thing with, you know, we can design this, all this sort of stuff. And it was unsolicited uh, at that point. 
you know, from my understanding as well. Um, so traditionally, I think there's a good brand study out there um, that your second tier competitors are the ones who come up with the most innovative things for aviation. Like that's people that are always trying to get, and, and I think that's true for most commercial things out there, you know, uh, like Sears Roebuck died, at, you know, died their own death over in the U.S., right? Um, and then you have other, you know, companies that are trying to, you know, consistently um, innovate and there's finding new ways and that's just how the world works. Uh, so what we have to do in the defense industry is get more of the smaller companies into making things. Giving Boeing a contract for the EX, in my opinion, is not the way to do that, uh, especially spanning that, you know, over time. Granted, the Air Force has an option to buy uh, kind of in blocks where, you know, they can cut it off at any point in time, which is super smart. Um, and they structure the contract pretty smart. Um, so is, is, as much as I don't like it, the way that the Air Force seemed to structure everything seemed to make uh, uh, make a lot more sense from how they're going to do it. Um, you know. There's some other internal stuff that nobody really cares about and some super nerdy stuff I can go on and, and, and talk about as far as OFPs go and and who owns what and how who holds software hostage and who, you know, you can't put this thing on without paying this guy money and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But, um, but I guess we'll keep it pretty simple with that and uh, and just say that I would do 10 year uh, contracts. I would get fighters in and and I would have them, you know, requirements be a certain commonality of systems or cockpits or fly bill, you know, anything that would make, you know, your logistics from pilot training to, um, you know, some maintenance requirements simple and kind of keep that streamlined while innovating, uh, on the technology side of the house, um, which I think we could do, you know, relatively easy. Um, but, one of the things that people talk about with regards to the F-35 or the people that I've spoken to who have flown it have talked about with regards to the F-35 is that there are compromises that are there because other nations are involved in the program. Um, and I'll give you an example, the canopy bow. Uh, that's there because the Royal Air Force wanted a canopy bow because they wanted the front part of the canopy to be re reinforced because of flying into birds in, in Europe. Uh, apparently, the, the birds are heavier, more likely to go through the windscreen than they would be anywhere else in the world. I don't know if that's true. Um, so, so guys talk about flying the F-35 and say there's a big canopy bow, which obscures their vision. It shouldn't be there. And the only reason it's there is because there are other nations involved. And of course, you've got three designs and the argument amongst detractors of the F-35 is that none of them really are that good. Um, do, do you think that the idea that um, Air Forces, nations, um, should should share um, the development work or share the cost of developing a new, uh, a new fighter or a new airframe is still valid? Um, is it short-sighted or, or actually does it make sense? Because they are prohibitively expensive to, to, to design and build. So in my, in my opinion, been fairly uneducated opinion, I'll tell you that. I think I would rather go with uh, competition over uh, cooperation or jointness. Uh, as far as development, like fighter development goes. And, and that's pretty much it. And, and I think that there's a, there's an engineering, there's an engineering way to kind of have your cake and eat it too, as far as modularity goes and be able to not really compromise on stuff, but just having, 
more innovative design when it comes to meeting two requirements at the same time. I think I think there's a lot of that that you can do, um, but yeah, the, the the whole JFS program and and how it emerged from what its original requirements were, um, and then you know pre requirements and JAST program um, on up to where it eventually came out, and you really think about it when it was designed right, it was designed before thumb drives were a thing. Um, and now you have this explosion in processing power and you know, memory and software, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that has a huge impact to avionics and sensors and what a jet can process. And then you have a, you have to think about, you know, uh, so that commercial explosion, you know, in my opinion happened through competition, uh, to get to specifically to your point, whether you know other nations should be involved in in it, I I don't know. I there's an element of you know foreign military sales that are that are great and um, a jointness of operating concept and being able to share things with your allies and try to have everybody have the best stuff at all times um, and then make sure that your relationships are really good. Uh, however, I would say if I were King for a day again. Um, what I would try to export really is a uh, kind of like an innovation ecosystem, and that's totally a buzzword, bull, you know, but a bullshit word. But um, it, it, it would almost be like a process where um, you know, don't give a man a fish. You can you know teach him how to fish, sort of thought, right? Um, so if you export that sort of uh, innovation system that can adapt to whatever the threat is, because Let's face it. If you buy an F-35 right now and you're planning on keeping it for 40 years, do you have any idea what combat is going to look like in 40 years? I mean, I don't think anybody does. You know, we, we don't know what any other, uh, you know, what any country is going to do or how they're going to defeat us with you know small munitions or there could be a total revolution and uh, you know, F-35 countermeasures that could come out in 10 years from now. Uh and then you would be stuck. You would have bought the farm. Uh, so you really need the system in place to be able to adapt to that faster uh, and say, hey, we can we can innovate and we can create and we can do this. And with, without the need, need to do economies of scale, this is a slight sidebar. But um, what I fundamentally believe is that um, if you look at things a little bit more uh, out of the container and say, do you really need economies of scale to make a good, you know, fighter? Because it's what, essentially what the F-35, that the whole selling point was, right? If we all cooperate on this, uh, we'll eventually, we'll make a lower cost fighter for everybody, right? It'll lower the cost of development. We'll get all these capabilities, et cetera. It'll lower the cost. Did that happen? I think we can all probably say it didn't. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> um, I, I think if we look at things like not necessarily economies of scale, uh, and th there's a really good a book by, uh, this guy named Hemant Tanaja, uh, who talks about economies of unscale. Um, there's a whole nother conversation that we can have uh, at some point, but, um, uh, you know, super adaptable ecosystems that can produce what you need when you need it versus having to, by a million widgets that can only do three or four purposes, you know, anyways, you get the point, but, um, 
I think we, if we shift the way that we think a little bit more, uh, we could probably have a better product for less money um, and have a more adaptable uh, uh, way to iterate those things or when we need to, basically is what I'm saying. So I don't, to answer your question, I don't like the joint, I, I don't like the jointness thing. I, I'm not sold on it. And I don't think that cooperating with other nations is the way to go. I think uh, you guys over there building the Tempest and all that sort of stuff, I think is probably the way to go. Um, Cause I, I honestly think that you guys are probably better off that way. <laughs> yeah. does, does the software side of things, so you mentioned how, um, you, you mentioned OFPs a second ago and talked about some of the, the politics and the complexities and the intellectual property rights and all that kind of stuff that sit, sit in around those. And, and I get your point about, you know, introducing competition and competition being healthy and you shouldn't just have three primary contractors um, and be tied to whatever products and whatever price they come up with. Um, but does the realisation or the reality that software is probably the key component. So if let's say, you know, your, your hardware is there, you've got the processing power, you have an airframe that's capable of flying as high and as fast and as long as it needs to in order to, to execute the mission as it's understood today. Does, does the fact that it's actually then really down to software undermine the argument against against something like the F-15EX? So, so maybe some of those subsystems are old. Uh, but if it's got a, a very fast processor, if it has the capability of running an AESA radar, the EPORS, um, electronic warfare suite, um, you know, IRST, infrared search and track, uh, a bunch of missiles, you know, can, can throw out a, a huge number of AIM-120s in one, in one go. Um, and the reality then that someone could come along and just put a new OFP program into it or add some new hardware and then add capabilities through software. Does that undermine the argument against that kind of platform at all? And, and the other thing, so just I wanted to mention it because I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I suspect you will be. But I read recently that the um, U2 had been reprogrammed in flight. I think they're using Kubernetes, um, using containerized software to upload you know, a, a new, I don't know what it is that they did with it exactly, but it was on an operational mission and they uploaded a new software load to it to presumably get it to do something they wanted it to do based on what it found when it was up there in, in terms of what it was monitoring, what it was trying to detect. Um, you know, does that mean that actually it is all about software and that the platform doesn't really matter anymore? So, um, yes and no. And, uh, and it, it depends a little bit. Um, when, Let's take the EX, for example. Um, you could have some really, really, really great software in there. You could have software that could predict black swan events, you know, uh, and have some crazy algorithm that no one's ever discovered. Um, but at, at the end of the day, if you're trying to do something uh, kinetically, even something non-kinetically, use sensors or whatever, there is a hardware component to them. Uh, and there are, uh, certain physics laws that apply, uh, to that. So I, I, would, I would say that software is, is, and being upgradable is no doubt a thing. And it is a huge thing. And there's an argument that software companies, uh, would be better off, um, uh, as the primes, you know, making hardware as a, uh, secondary than, uh, hardware companies, traditional, you know, companies like Boeing, uh, doing software as kind of a secondary, you know, uh, 
definitely an argument there, and I can totally see that. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, physics does apply to things that travel through, you know, uh, every medium, uh, including you know, the air, sea, space, you know, everything. Um, and you mentioned AIM-120s and uh, AIM-120 could have the greatest software in the world, but, you know, if the rocket motors are only capable of getting at X amount of miles, then, you know, who cares, right? Um, and similar thing with the jet. Um, and when you get into sensors and spectrums and uh, seeing, you know, multi-different spectrums and trying to figure out how to target something, a lot of that goes back to a hardware aspect as well. Uh, and, and software is a huge component. Don't, I'm not trying to undersell it, but um, it's just, unless you're talking about having a cyber war, you know, via computer, then uh, there's still going to be a hardware component uh, with it. And my thoughts would be that I think that you should continue to iterate on the um hardware side as well and propulsion side and solving problems, uh, that we have, you know, uh, the Pacific is a really big place and fuel is a, you know, fuel is an issue and range is an issue and solving that via different means of propulsion or, you know, reducing a logistics burden for a jet A fuel for to Island X is a, is a big win, uh, for a lot of different, you know, uh, scenarios that you could find yourself in. So it's not all software, but software is a huge part of it. Don't get me wrong. And we, and we need good people. If that, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, it's, it's an answer. It's an answer. It's an answer. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned the Pacific then. Um, I mean, if you think about someone like China, um, and, and the potential you know, for some, some kind of uh, conflict with them in the future. And having just said five or six minutes ago, we don't know what warfare is going to look like in, in 30, 40 years' time, maybe not even in, in 10 years' time. What, what, what are the things that go through your mind um, in regards to you know, potentially going up against China in, in that theatre? If we were to go against China in that theater, there's a couple things that would come to mind. Um, a, whether it's uh, intrinsically a military problem or intrinsically a political problem, uh, how we would handle that uh, in either way. If it were to be kinetic primarily, um, how would that solve um, some strategic questions that we would, you know, go up against and really it would depend on the exact scenario, the exact uh, circumstances that you found yourself in. But one of the things that would come to mind would be uh, solving a, um, I think logistics would be a a problem to solve for sure. Um, And how do we solve that? How do we solve an influence problem uh, over there? How do we, uh, win more friends in the Pacific. Um, and I don't know, there, there's actually a lot of little problems that are probably non-military related that I think would influence more of the military operation than um, just drawing a bunch of, you know, red circles and arrows on a map uh, and talking about whether a J-20 is better than an F-35. Um, I, I don't think that those are crucial arguments to have necessarily. Um, but I think that a lot of the 
a lot of the other arguments are way more important, such as uh, influence, uh, the regional politics, um, logistics, for sure, uh, if you're trying to do any um, operation. Um, if you look back in history and you see like War Plan Orange, which was the uh, U.S. war plan um, against the Japanese prior to Pearl Harbor of what they would do if, you know, if the Japanese invaded specific islands. A lot of it was about fighting your way back, uh, island hopping as it were, you know, and, and sea power was a huge part of that naturally. Um, but if you look at that, the logistics piece of any operation that involves, you know, the Pacific ocean is, uh, is worth pouring a ton of, uh, R and D into, but yeah, that, that would be one of the things I would be thinking about most probably. Tying it back to what you were talking about with regards to the military industrial complex, the bang for buck, um, you know, the quality of the output based on the quality of the competition. Um, we're going up against, so from a kinetic perspective, going up against China, would probability of kill and the quality of what you had, do you think, make the difference? I ask because... I suppose quantity, the old saying is quantity has a quality of its own. Uh, and if you were going to go up against a far superior force, I'm imagining that you every time you fire a, a, a missile or or you use a, a jammer or whatever it is that, that has an effect on the enemy, you want it to work. Uh, you don't want it to have a 50-50% chance of working or, or achieving the desired outcome, the desired effect. Does, does that factor into your thinking? Is that something that, um, you know, the... Uh, you know, requires more time and attention and, and focus. Or are, are you? Do you feel that you're at a point where you're, you know, the, the capability is there? Um, no, I don't feel like the capability is there. Um, I think that we have a lot of great stuff, and there's a lot of great stuff in the break glass in case of emergency. You know, on that shelf, but I don't think that. Um, as it stands right now, I'm not really sure that we're capable of evolving past a day one or day two uh, uh, kinetic scenario. Um, and once you go, so warfare, we start day one and we, we think about initial capabilities a lot and whether our stuff right now is better than their stuff right now. But really the bigger discussion to have would be, uh, is our stuff capable of being better on day two than their stuff is or day three or day four? And how can we learn? And then how can we um, uh, iterate or develop uh, our stuff to be better than, than theirs are? Which is where the software piece comes in, back to our conversation before, being able to learn, being able to throw in you know, new things or, or collect data uh, and then fuse that together and then come up with um, a better capability at the end of the day. That piece is probably the piece that I worry about the most is our capability to uh, rapidly do that fast. Um, there might be some advertised capability to do that, you know, somewhere along the line. But as far as like down to the actual, you know, the warfighter fighting, you know, uh, a fighter squadron fighting out of a semi-austere location, you know, or whatever, or not getting not using the big infrastructure, the big, uh, what we talked about with logistics wise, you know, maybe cut off lines of communication or cut off, et cetera, not being able to iterate that fast enough and not being able to be self-contained, um, uh, 
to make that happen. That's the part that I worry about. I think we're capable of it uh, if we change things around with uh, acquisition, uh, PPBE. There are a bunch of different ways, but uh, yeah. So as far as probably probability of kill goes, um, that would probably be my my biggest concern uh, overall. The day two plus uh, war. Do you get the sense that your you know, your sort of wider thoughts are shared um, amongst your colleagues in the Air Force. I, I mean, I wouldn't ask you to tell me what you think General Brown is 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 talking about or uh, or, or what he should be doing. Um, but but do you think these are things, are conversations that go on at higher levels in, in in the Air Force? So my you know observation is kind of a a nobody um, would be that I I think a lot of the stuff maybe happens at a at a high level. Um, but I don't think it happens at a, a mid level. Um, and people may pay lip service to a lot of the things that we're talking about, but as far as just getting it done at the end of the day, I'm not a hundred percent sure that we're there collectively, uh, yet. Um, you know, one of the great spots for a fighter squadron has always been the squadron bar. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's where all the bright ideas are shared and everybody's, you know, stories and understandings and how things really happen versus how they were written in a book happen. Um, uh, but, you know, obviously with COVID and stuff like that, that's limited the interaction that people have had at squadron bars and other social you know places. Um, so I, I think that general consensus is shared amongst the bro level of, we're really going to have to figure this thing out. And a lot of guys are having some of these conversations now, but, um, and, and, and I think they're, they're happening at a fairly high level. Uh, and they understand that. I think the, the mid level is a little bit more, uh, less in touch with that, I would say. Uh, and, and, and to be honest, they have a fair amount of political maneuvering to do, uh, as well. So there's other drivers of things that, uh, maybe more important than, you know, these things uh, at the time. Uh, so, yeah. It's an interesting point because I think one of the things that you, you sort of observe or one observes with an outgoing chief of staff and an incoming one is people will say, well, I thought this guy was going to come in and do all this stuff and, and he didn't. Maybe, the, you know, the next guy, I, I, he was in my squadron. I, I know he was a great guy and, you know, he was my 06 and yeah, he'll, he'll get stuff done. And then, and then it sort of repeats. And, and, and I wonder whether or not actually it's just the way it works. It's how it is. And you can go in. I mean, let's take you as an example. If you were to rise through the ranks of the Air Force, you know, you might just get to the point where you realize actually these things cannot be done. The best you can do is influence. And um, But having said that, I also then hear about, you know, good guys or, or girls in the, in the Air Force who are sort of star chasing a little bit and they, you know, they start off as being you know sort of you know well respected and um, you know full of principle and, and ambition and, and ideas and then as soon as the possibility of them getting a star comes up they change a little bit uh, they become a little bit risk averse they're, they're not prepared to ruffle feathers um, you know, if you think of, the, of that as perhaps being the, the opposite of someone like Robin Olds um, that seems to be the story as well so you know perhaps it's just a case of it is what it is uh, and you can't really change it. It won't change. Yep. I think, I mean, there's a, 
there's something to be said about that, right? There's a the the, the bureaucracy. You know, I use that term kind of loosely. Uh, the bureaucracy has behaviors that it rewards and behaviors that it punishes, right? And everybody ends up knowing what those behaviors are, um, and then that's how normally you get kind of up the ladder. Uh, and, and in some cases, if your risky bet pays off, you know, then you're rewarded with it and you go up, you know, you're, you're good. If your risky bet does not pay off, then you're not, you know, that's it usually. Uh, so there's a risk management of, uh, that happens as you go up the rank. It's, it's kind of like, you know, if you're going to go out and, uh, dip money into the stock market and, you know, you throw 10 bucks out there you know, to buy into whatever, you don't really give a shit what happens to it. Uh, but let's say you have a hundred thousand dollars and that's, you know, and then you're like, okay, this is it. Uh, and I'm, I'm wagering all this on this one bet, you know, and you're going to be more cautious and more, you know, you're going to do a lot more research and the answer is always going to be no. And, you know, and all this sort of stuff. Uh, so that, I think that's what happens as you, as you get more, uh, generally as you get more responsibility. Um, so a lot of stuff at the uh, bottom ranks, you know, you're easy to, Easy to say, well, yeah, that's bullshit. Or we, we can make this happen. Or we can do this or whatever, you know. And then, uh, um, and maybe once you get to the very, very top, you kind of realize that, hey, maybe I should have taken more risk or should have done this or should have done that uh, to be able to make it better. Or um, there, there's no catalyst for change, um, which is probably what's happening uh, moreover right now. You know, there, there hasn't been a really big war um, uh, enough to people, you know, enough for people to say, like, it's either think, sink or swim, you know, everybody's pretty, uh, pretty okay. Holding mediocrity, uh, at this point and, and mediocrity gets promoted, uh, for the most part, as long as you don't, you know, like you said, ruffle any feathers and it's really about being as diplomatic as you possibly can, you know, to everybody and likable. And, you know, this guy's super likable and he does this and does that. And we kind of run into a little bit, you know, at the fighter squadron at a level of, um, of tactics and, uh, it, it, it's easy to be really, really well liked if you're always nodding your head. Yep. That's a great, that's a great idea. You know? Yep. That's, uh, that's, you know, that, that's, that's, I understand. Yep. I'll, uh, I'll keep learning, you know, and all this sort of stuff. Uh, on the other hand, if, if you're like, no, dude, that's a hundred percent bullshit and that's never going to work because of these reasons right here. Uh, you're, you're making yourself a lot more vulnerable to, uh, a being wrong, you could be totally wrong, you know, or, um, you could be right. And the person who, you know, came up with those tactics you're talking to, and he doesn't want to, you know, either he doesn't want to admit that, you know, there's holes in this plan or, um, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe he thinks that, you know, he has more experience than you in making these decisions or, you know, or, or he's right. And, and, and he could have all those things for sure. Um, but the, usually the nature in the fighter squadron is to, uh, poke people in the chest when they need to and not, you know, whatever. But, um, there's a, there's a slow, like change, I would say, uh, happening. I think we're, I feel like people are getting a little bit more, um, they're, they're building a little bit bigger appetite for risk and, um, you know, experimenting a little bit more around and, and not necessarily saying that, you know, I have to be a yes man all the way to the top. So I, I think that culture is changing. Um, I, I, I just, I'm, I'm not sure that it's, uh, uh, fully there yet or, 
you know, where it needs to be uh, overall. So like, for, for example, even saying the EX stuff is a little bit of heresy, uh, you know, in my world, because that's the, that's the holy grail of, you know, the e-model community is the EX is the next best thing and all this sort of stuff, you know. Do you think that uh, the wars such as they are, the conflicts, the limited conflicts in things like Syria and, and Libya in 2011, uh, do you think cumulatively they will have an effect uh, or do you think actually it's just a sort of trickle of change and, and not that we need a war but if you wanted that sort of change to come the bigger changes to come then you'd have to have a, a more substantial conflict um, I mean is there I guess what I'm really asking in a strange way is do does the Air Force just need more of the right type of people or or actually is it an event that would uh, would, would create that change yeah I uh, I think that an event uh would yeah there would have to be a catalyst to be able to make some substantial change and the real change that i'm talking i'm talking about really is going to be uh an appetite for uh risk and not just any risk um being able to vision or see into the future a little bit uh and then be able to make a wager on that and know that you might be wrong or you might be right but you know have a good feeling that you're going to be right uh and and then not be afraid to go with that. With a lot of the conflicts that we've gotten into, and we talked last time, and some of them were you know, super complex from a strategic level, extremely complex with multiple strategic audiences. Um, and then this whole matrix uh, decision tree that you never really knew where it was going to end up, right? Um, so from a risk perspective, uh, the easiest thing in most of those cases would be to not do anything or to try to lower the amount of risk and then point to the scenario uh, to say, well, it was very, very complicated and we just erred on the side of uh, low risk, you know, because we didn't think it was worth it to, you know, stir the bees nest for no reason, uh, which, which is valid. But the, the problem with that is it creates a uh, strain of thinking through everybody that low risk is the default in the best decision um, to make. Uh, however, uh, I actually could use a little scenario out of Syria when we talked about the, uh, the vehicle-borne IEDs, uh, whether you were going to drop in munition or not, uh, and you had the likelihood of, you know, you could hit a refugee vehicle or it could be a, a VBID, and you weren't really, you didn't really know for sure. Um, so you had a lot of risk there, whether it was going to uh, pay off or not. Um, and the risk of not doing anything is almost equal to the risk of doing something, you know? Um, so I think in a scenario where you know, we get into a conflict with a, a pure competitor, we're going to have to change around the risk calculus that we have right now to saying that the risk of not doing something is way more than the risk of doing something and being wrong about it. Um, and, and that type of thinking is just not inherent in uh, the Air Force and to a greater extent the DOD uh, right now, uh, save for a few individuals. And yeah, I'm not really sure why it's just just is what it is, you know. Can, can you get that? You, you talked right at the beginning about the linear nature of um, what goes on at Nellis in terms of red flag. You know, there's a there's a line, and once you cross it, anyone in front of you is a bad guy, and anyone behind you is a goodie. You know, um, 
do the structures and the tools and the, the facilities and the simulations exist within your community at least uh, to allow you to train against a, a, a peer um, adversary? Um, you know, could you adequately simulate someone like, you know, heaven forbid, Russia or, or, or China as, as an adversary? Um, yes and no. Uh, I don't think that we do a really good job of it right now. I think we have the tools and capability to do a good job at it, though. Uh, and it would take a really um, a deep dive into red teaming scenarios and really poking holes in um, in invalidating tactics that we have now. Um, so there's kind of a weird it's kind of a weird political rift, I guess you could say, internal politics of uh, invalidating tactics or invalidating uh, uh, you know, programs or record or invalidating you know, munitions or capability, whatever it is. Um, so you really don't... A lot of people are not comfortable with designing a scenario that would you know, make all your stuff on a day-to-day basis obsolete. Um, However, I think we're going to have to get to the point where we're really, really red teaming our own weaknesses uh, day in and day out and a lot more frequently, which is, which is what I would imagine a pure fight to look like. From, from a pure like technical or technology standpoint, sure, whatever. But uh, from an actual tactical perspective, if we were really serious about fighting pure adversaries, we would really have to think about how are we going to solve really complex problems that they're throwing at us based on assessing our own weaknesses uh, and then keep that flowing. So I, I don't think that we're, we're there yet as a entity. Um, and I don't think that we really critically think through a lot of that, uh, that stuff. Um, but hopefully we can, hopefully we can get there with enough poking and prodding uh, overall. So to answer your question, I, I think, yeah, the capabilities we have the capability to do that. Whether we're exercising right now, I, I don't think is the case. We talked a little in the, I can't remember if it was the first, well, it was one interview we did, one one conversation we did, went on for two hours or so, and I released it as two parts. I can't remember which part I released it in, but um, we talked a little bit about the multitude of mission sets that the Strike Eagle has. And uh, I suppose that what you've just said touches also a little on the wide range of potential conflicts that you could be involved in. So, you know, as a community in an aeroplane that can do so many different things, um, it must be a, it must be a challenge to be able to say, to say on the one hand, well, our squadron is ready to go up against someone like China, um, but our squadron is also ready to go and do CAS in Syria when there are sort of three or four different factions on the ground, and um, and actually what we're dealing with is. Um, people fleeing in in sort of buses or, and identifying whether or not that bus is, a, is full of refugees or if that's a vehicle-borne IED. That wasn't a question, so I'll, I'll make it into a question. Is it difficult? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is for sure. Um, it, it, it definitely is. Um, it's difficult to know if what you're you know, focusing on is the right thing or if it's worth it or if it's irrelevant, you know, whatever. Uh, and I, I think we venture down the, the path of uh, irrelevancy a lot more than we 
venture down the path of relevancy. And, uh, you know, like we talked about the first time, a, a big portion of it is just technical proficiency in the jet of being able to do, you know, push buttons and do things and, you know, put your jet where it needs to be and do things. And, and that's great. As far as understanding, unpacking the tactical picture of uh, Syria or uh, tactical picture of, you know, Russia or China or whatever, um, a lot of that takes a, a concerted effort of each individual's member to stay sharp on uh, Intel, uh, all the Intel analysis that's going around as well as normal news analysis and what you know think tanks are saying about specific regions and uh, going to specific analysts for, you know, stuff that is country specific, building a context, understanding how that war is, how they fight war, understanding how war is likely to be fought uh, and then framing your, your mind around all those things and, and how they come together and getting mentally prepared yourself for that. Um, I think that's less of an institutional thing and more of an individual uh, thing. And like I said, these are all conversations that we'd have at the squadron bar, you know, about, you know, why, how Russia, you know, what Russia's Zapod exercise in 2021 is going to be like, or what they're, you know, uh, political ambitions are for the Arctic or what, you know, yeah, all, all those things are kind of what we would uh, talk about and how they're going to use, you know, how would they use force? How would they not use force? What would drive them to use force in a certain way? Um, and the same could be said about, you know, Iran or uh, Syria or, you know, a- a- any other potential conflict spot. Um, we would hopefully start having these conversations and think about the realistic implications of not just, um, reenacting the Gulf war to every single country, um, you know, out there, we would have to think about tailoring certain capabilities and certain things and certain, you know, and getting mentally prepared to be able to make those, make those decisions and make them count, uh, at a strat level, I think. So that, that, and we would talk about BFM and all the other cool stuff too. So (laughs) final question then. And, We've already sort of referenced this a little, um, I, th- I suppose, sort of and, um, tangentially. We've referenced it a little, but uh, fifth gen uh, capabilities. You talked about what does their capability, what does the the, the uh, adversary's capabilities look like on day two, day three, so on and so forth. So, uh, non permissive environment. You probably on day one, it's going to be the, the stealthy platforms of fifth gens going in, kicking down the door, taking out um, strategic targets. You know, um, to allow then, I guess, on day two, some of the the four point five gen fighters to come in and do their stuff in a slightly more permissive environment. Uh, how is the striking communities um, work going with integrating with people? Flying the F thirty five, I suppose F twenty two has been around a lot longer, but F thirty five in particular. Are you spending time uh, working out how to operate in tandem with them? Uh, is that an easy thing to do? Does it require you to relearn certain things? Uh, does it just add a, a, a second set of um, sort of playbooks that you've got to you've got to memorize? Uh, what does it look like? So, with our integration of the fifth gen, uh, we do that actually. Um, the squadron I'm in currently, we've done that quite a bit. Uh, so we've we've done exercise with the Raptor dudes and the uh, F-35 guys, both 
you know, even Marine F-35s, uh, in, in addition to the Air Force F-35s, and we've kind of learned a little bit more about their capes and what they're capable, and what they're capable of, and, and how they would integrate with us and what they could offer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, that uh, which, which is great uh, and really cool. The problem that we run into a lot of times is uh, a lot of the Fortune, you know, community has a belief that oh, don't worry, the fifth gen guys are going to handle, you know, all the heavy lifting. We're going to come at the end. We're going to, you know, we're going to clean up all the, you know, all this stuff, um, which I, I don't really think is a hundred percent realistic. Uh, and I think a lot of contingency operations revolve around uh, what unit is available, what unit can get there fast enough and uh, where specific units are at specific times. Um, so for uh, fourth gen, you know, you could be rotated in and you could have, you know, F-35s could be stretched thin, you know, in some other area of the world and you could be the only ones there, you know, or sometimes war doesn't follow a, a specific timeline of events that you would prefer. Uh, so sometimes it's just whoever's there and available. Uh, the other thing is maintenance availability when it comes to uh, producing lines and uh, there's a logistics tail that follows that. Uh, with, you know, can we get parts for, uh, you know, F-22s in theater? Can we, you know, all, there's a, a whole bigger, you know, uh, cycle that has to take place. Um, so I I don't think that everything, I, I don't think you can bank on everything being a perfect operation that you plan to, that you just, Man, you know, fifth gen is going to go in, um, and they're going to do all these cool things, and then fourth gen is going to come in. We're going to clean up a bunch of stuff, and you know, we're going to have this perfect integration that flows in. I don't think that that is necessarily realistic. It's possible, but it, um, you know, who knows if that'll happen? So the integration piece is really cool, uh, and and I really enjoy it uh, with those guys, and we we've, we've learned a lot about them and what they're capable of and what they're not capable of. Um, you know, they, they have this, they have some weaknesses, uh, as well. And, um, you know, we, we can find those out and, and, and help them out where we can. And, but they have some strengths that, you know, we have, we haven't seen before. Um, and they have some really cool stuff that they can do. And I don't want to undersell the, uh, the fifth gen guys because they can, they can do a lot of great stuff. Would you want to fly it? Would you want to fly the F-35? Uh, yeah, I think it'd be, I mean, I think it'd be cool to fly, uh, to be honest with you. I, uh, I love flying the Strike Eagle. I think it'd be great to fly the F-35. I love flying different types. Uh, so, you know, it'd be great to see, um, all the stuff that they do. I, I, I think the F-35 has some, uh, cool pieces to their tactical evolution about how they use each airframe, uh, that the Strike Eagle community is lacking right now. Uh, we're trending in that direction, but, um, they, they use some of their capabilities to their advantage in unique and novel ways, which I think is awesome. So it'd be great to fly. Uh, there are some things about the Strike Eagle though I really love. You know, it's a it's a Strike Eagle is a pretty good pilot's jet as far as you know. You pull back on the stick, and nothing's limited to you. You know, you can do. You know, there's guys who have pulled twelve Gs in that jet, and it's it's pretty. You know, it, it, it's a good flying jet, and it's it, it's a jet that you fly a hundred percent. You know, and um, and it's a fun, it super fun jet to fly. Uh, I I think, but um, 
So I don't know if the, you know, that's why it would be a lot more automated, you know, maybe not as cool from a pilot perspective. I don't know. I've never flown it. Um, so, but I think it'd be cool to, you know, see what it can do and fly it and stuff. 